Welcome to Behind the Axle. This is a podcast that will take a look at what is going on in the world of wheelchair rugby. We will take a look at the topics and issues that are of concern to the players, coaches, staffs, referees, and classifiers of our league from coast to coast. We hope that you will join me, Mike Klinowski, Dave Mengen, and Hall of Famer Chris Cook as we discuss what is going on in our great sport today. Hey, this is Mike Klinowski from Behind the Axle. I've got Dave Mengen and Chris Cook, and we are honored to have Kevin Orr, who has come back to the States uh, from his time in Japan, finished with a great big win against the Aussies in the uh, Asian Oceanic Championships. We're excited to have you, Kevin. Thank you so much for being on here. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely, man. So we've got a whole lot to talk about. We're going to come at you with a lot of questions. Uh, let's Let's start at the beginning. How did you become involved with wheelchair rugby? Well, my first experience with wheelchair rugby was when I was in college at the University of Illinois. Uh, I was a wheelchair basketball, wheelchair track athlete. And um, there was um, a team that was starting at the university. And I was a therapeutic recreation student and I needed some volunteer hours. So um, before then, I had really, um, there was a quad that would come to the gym where I'd work out. And really, I'd kind of rag him a bit about, um, hey, that electric chair is going to kill you. Um, you know, hey, you need to start doing something. Um, so uh, he uh, he decided to try a manual chair and uh, took uh, about 20 minutes to go baseline to baseline. Um, and then after the course of really starting wheelchair rugby, um, uh, when the team started up, he was actually able to push a manual chair and then eventually became good enough to be one of the point fives to make the world championship team in 1998. So I'm um, seeing a person go from um, basically a totally power chair dependent to you know, being a national team point five. Pretty incredible to see that uh, firsthand and uh, thinking, wow, what, what a powerful sport. Kevin, that was me 20 years earlier. <laughs> I, I, I've seen many, many, many examples of that. But, you know, being an athlete and seeing um, how sport can transform someone and really to see that firsthand, um, you know, after giving someone a little bit of uh, ribbing, you know, about, hey, man, that electric chair is killing you, um, and then see where it can take them. And, you know, that man uh, ended up with a very successful career as well as um, – doing well in rugby and doing well in life and uh, and really that's that's the impression that wheelchair rugby left on me early and that's something that it, it continues to drive me Try, drop a name who are we talking about We're talking about Kirk Bennell um, that's who I thought all right yeah and he uh, he he went from uh, I mean just barely being able to push a, a chair to being a world-class point five and it's just a great guy. Right. So it's all about the, the rehabilitative component of sport, but there's a side of you that I know is super incredibly competitive. Uh, you've been the 
national coach of the United States, of Canada, of Japan. Uh, you were part of the Lakeshore dynasty when it came to national championships. I think it was 10 seasons in a row where you guys made it to nationals. And was it four championships in a row that five. you guys won? Five? Yeah, we, we won five in a row um, and 10, uh, 10 national championship finals in a row. And it was, wow. uh, uh, we, we had a good Crazy. run. So what got you down to Lakeshore? Well, um, growing up in the Midwest, growing up in Illinois, and then going to the University of Illinois and, and not having a car, um, pushing in the snow, I was determined to move south. <laughs> I, I never envisioned myself shoveling my driveway to go to work. So um, I looked for a place to do uh, an internship. So I, I looked in Dallas, I looked in Atlanta, um, and then I did the Vulcan run in 1989 and learned about Lakeshore um, after doing the Vulcan run. And, and really they had their own gym. Uh, it was a one court facility. They had an 1100 square foot fitness center and a four lane pool. And, I'm, and it was all dedicated for people with disabilities. And I'm like, yep, that's where I want to do my internship. Um, so I ended up down uh, Birmingham, did my internship. And my intent was to go back to school. Um, and then I was a double bronze medalist in track in the Seoul Paralympics. Um, and my intent was to go back to school. I get a master's degree and train for the Barcelona Paralympics, but I was offered a, a job where I could uh, do kids programs um, as a child who grew up with a physical disability and having an opportunity to do that for kids was uh, a great opportunity. And then also during my internship, they wanted me to start a, a wheelchair rugby team, um, which started a, the framework for that in 1990, but really didn't get that going until um, 91, 92 and in our first season in the USQRA at the time. Um, was in 92. So you were an athlete, an intern, and you realized that you were drawn into Lakeshore and its mission. Um, how did you recruit athletes? Uh, that, 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 that's always the question, right? I think the, mm -hmm. the, how do you find people that you don't know and not growing up in this community? Really, it's trying to network with people. Um, so really trying to find uh, people that did business with uh, our population, so met as many medical providers, um, so different rehabilitation hospitals, um, people that did anything in the medical world, so any PME providers, any uh, anyone in that kind of realm. I got to know anyone and everyone because I was doing kids programs and starting wheelchair rugby and doing general recreation. I had some adults that were doing track. I tried to just network with everybody and anyone that was involved in the wheelchair sport world, uh, wheelchair basketball, track, tennis, any of that kind of stuff, really try to dig. Um, that's where I found a few of the people that, that came in. Uh, the first person uh, was really um, the first person that had ever tried wheelchair rugby when Randy Snow uh, was at Lakeshore. He tried to get wheelchair rugby going um, and Tommy Sullivan was the only person that he had found. Um, and then I decided that I was just going to start wheelchair rugby practice and, and pick the day because we had a gym and said, we're going to practice on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Anyone that wants to do quad rugby show up at this time. Sully was the only one that would show up and then we would do practice until, and then anytime I would go out, I would tell people, Hey, we've got wheelchair rugby. We're going on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Tell Rick therapist, tell whoever. Um, 
and come. And, and eventually people started coming. That's awesome. So Tommy Sullivan, who's, who's still involved with the sport, obviously, especially, uh, Lakeshore, uh, pops out on the court every now and then. Um, who was another big, uh, big piece of the puzzle when you were starting to really grab traction? Well, we needed someone who was active. So Kevin Whalen, who was a wheelchair tennis player, had moved to Birmingham to play wheelchair tennis. He was a quad tennis player. And he moved down. uh, So we had a person who was a a living example about being an active quad. And he had had some experience because he was with the Baltimore team when they had started. So he came out. and, and then we, we had a couple pieces. We actually had two low pointers. So we had Tommy Sullivan and Perry Swindle. So we had two class ones and Kevin Whalen. Um, and then I got word uh, through the through Spain Rehab, through the rec therapist, that, hey, we have this new uh, 20-year-old quad who's, I think he was six months or seven months, uh, seven months post-injury. I'm like, yeah, have him come out. Um, so he came out. Uh, you guys probably have heard of him. Uh, his name is Brian Kirkland. <laughs> um, he was still in a Philly collar. And um, I'm like, hey, we have this sport. You know, he was an uh, honorable mention uh, basketball and football player in the state of Alabama. Um, I see this guy who's six foot six. That uh, yeah, I, I think we can work something with this. <laughs> and not long after, um, uh, Morris Gardner coached our wheelchair basketball t- uh, team at the time. and had done some work in North Alabama. Mentioned this other guy, Willard Brooks, um, who was playing wheelchair basketball in Huntsville. Um, he's like, he's six foot eight. He's, he was a division one college basketball prospect until he had his car accident. Um, I'm like, so we had the, we framed them, the twin towers. Mm-hmm. And those, those five players were the original Lake demolition. Uh, we had two ones. Uh, we had, a two and two, two, five. So we had a lineup, um, with a substitution. Oh, it's <laughs> quite a, a first lineup. Well, we took our licks. Uh, it, it, sure. it wasn't as awesome as you might think to begin with. Like, uh, we'd use timeouts to take rest. Um, you know, some people would use them to, uh, as a jet, get out of jail free card. Um, we were using our timeouts, uh, you know, cause we push a couple times up the court. It's like coach, I need a, I need a break. <laughs> so we burn our timeouts to, to give the guys a rest. So, um, those were the growing pains when we first started going. Um, and, and, and one thing I, I've got to say is I really have to credit the Atlanta team. Um, Dave Loy, who was the rec therapist at Shepherd, uh, Burt Burns, Bill Furbish. Um, I'm going to meet um, Clint Cook. I, I'm going to forget names. Um, but those guys, uh, we would not have had a team at Lakeshore had it not been for them. Uh, Darren Roberts came over to referee, um, but they came over a couple of times, did some clinics for us to really get us started. And um, if it had not been for them coming over, we would not have had a team. So uh, those guys were instrumental once we got a few guys out uh, to really help us uh, get things going at Lakeshore. That's incredible. Those are those are some incredible names that you are just throwing at us there. Right. I mean, you're talking about the history of the league Kevin, with so many of those folks. You, uh, I, I heard Cookie asked um, if I could say something about Cliff Chun. Yeah, is that all right? 
Absolutely, yeah, please. So, so before we get to Cliff Chun, uh, we had a few more players that came in. So uh, the team started evolving. We started going. We recruited a few more people because um, we were having consistent practices with five guys and doing some of that kind of stuff. So our team eventually grew. We had a guy named Tommy Greenhouse, who was another local guy, uh, 2.5. Uh, we never had any high pointers. Um, it was all mid pointers and low pointers. And um, we just kept uh, we just kept working. Um, we'd go play Atlanta, we'd play Tampa, we'd play Tennessee, and we would just get blown away. Um, we made our first the, well the the first time we attempted to make nationals, we lost on a last second goal to Colorado. They were the hosts, um, and that was one of those ah you know you, you think of rugby moments uh, that was one of those uh, moments that we were so close to being able to qualify because at that time it was a 12 team nationals um, and we were we were 13th um, so we really were just trying to develop as a team um, and continuing to recruit we found our first high pointer but then he ended up getting classed out and at that nationals uh, Cliff had come to uh, he was with Tennessee and with the quad crushers and uh, was looking for a place to go to college. So he comes up uh, to me after nationals uh, and asks if he could come play for Lakeshore. He was going to enroll at Sanford university and uh, he wanted to know if he, he could be involved with our team. And of course, you know, he fit in with our group and uh, it was a privilege to be able to coach him and, and be involved with him. But, you know, he had come in as a, uh, as a 2.0 and again, it's just another, uh, another mid pointer to fit in with what we were doing. And, um, and it really, it, it got our team thinking about what we needed to do to be successful. I mean, cause we were working, we were working hard. I mean, we took our licks from, from basically the, the strong teams in the East, um, you know, Houston, uh, you know, we, we would just get battered. I mean, Houston, Tampa, Atlanta, Tennessee. I mean, um, but those were great learning moments for us too. So when Cliff came in, um, he really challenged the guys. It's like, you guys got to, you got to work harder. You got to push more. You got to do, um, and basically reinforcing what I've been trying to tell the guys. So, um, you know, you had a player who was then, Hey, let's come on, get your, get in shape. Let's, let's do this. Um, and, we had demolition derby uh, that year and uh, Cliff was joining a fraternity or was in a fraternity and he had all his fraternity, but buddies come out to the game. So that little old gym was just packed. Awesome. Uh, great, great atmosphere for wheelchair yeah. rugby. Uh, yeah. And I mean, Cliffy just, uh, Cliffy was, uh, he was just pure heart. I mean, that, that's all I could say. Uh, with him because on, on paper today he's probably a 1.0 um, maybe because uh, I'd say that he has a half point trunk not a one trunk which a lot of people would allege because he can't really get outside the plane of, of his chair without falling over um, I, him and uh, Stefan from Sweden basically identical function and Stefan played as a 1.0 um, but he was all heart like um his mom and dad were both uh, 
college athletes and he just had that pedigree and he had determination to, um, to do whatever it took to, to be successful. Um, he worked for, for me in the office a little bit and he would key in. Um, he, I mean, he had, uh, he has, uh, cause he's still around, um, doesn't have any finger function or wrist function. So when he'd key in on the, uh, uh, on the keyboard, put a pencil in and key in. I'm like, he, he just makes things happen. And, um, and again, it, it's, it's another example of the power of the sport is that you just do with what you got and you go. And then you got someone like Cliff's determination. It's like that, that, that kind of spirit transcends to everybody. And it's like, if you tell someone, Hey, let's, let's work. Um, and you got someone that's doing that, it really just carries over to the rest of the group. So yeah, I, I credit Cliff with the, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it was part of the transformation of, of the Lakeshore demolition for sure. That's so cool. Like, I mean, a lot of people probably don't know the journey that you went on with this squad and the different parts and pieces, unless someone was playing at that time, there's a whole generation of folks that don't know that storied history that you guys have and that you turned into something that was transformational for the sport. You gave something for teams to idolize and to build like, because they saw the success that you guys had. Was there a, was there a certain season that like stood out as like the most magical out of those uh, 10 attempts to uh, win a national championship? Well, they were all magical. I mean, um, just the practices that we had were magical. I mean, the, um, you know, after after Cliff was here for a year, his old teammates, um, Eddie Crouch and Wayne Romero, um, they decided they were going to drive down. They drove to Birmingham twice a week uh, for practices because they said, if you're going to be on the team, we're, we're going to practice. The expectation's the same. They committed to it. They did it for six years where they're driving um, – they're driving three hours one way to come to practice. Nice. Um, and uh, they did it twice a week. And then you could, like, we had a Tuesday night and a Saturday practice. Um, and on Wednesday morning, you could call them at work the next day. They'd be at work in the morning the next day. Um, well, that's how dedicated they were to the sport. Um, I mean, so not only great wheelchair rugby players and great men, but, I mean, committed to their jobs and committed to what they were doing. Um, I, I mean, just – the success, uh, the, the, the representation on and off the court was just phenomenal. And I mean, everyone thinks about the success on the court, but, um, it's the things that people do off the court that it, it just amazes me today. I mean, to think about those men and the men and women that played for Lakeshore, it's just, um, success breeds success, right? And you have the success on and off the court when you're successful in, in one aspect of your life. A lot of times that carries over. And um, then when you're in those tough situations and some of those close games, you come back and you fight. And um, and when you're that dedicated, you know, you can always look someone dead in the eye and say, just think all the work that we've done to get to this point. And then they can go out and give it in a real game. And, um, you know, we, we had one of those situations where we're hosting um, the national championship, we're down against, uh, against Phoenix. And, uh, I think we're down three or four. I'm like, let's go out and get it. 
and uh, and we came back and won the game. And like, yep, but that's that's what we do. Um, we're resilient. We're, we're resilient, and we fight. And that's kind of been my mantra. Um, that you, through any team that I've coached, and and with Lakeshore, I mean those guys bought into it. Um, and it's such a pleasure to coach all those guys. And I mean, we had some guys that were world class, and we had people that you won't even recognize their name. They were as dedicated as uh, as everybody else on the team. So, um, I mean, we'd have eighteen guys at practice, or. Men and women at practice. We even had a kid that was at practice. I mean, it was infectious. It was it was great environment for sure. So, Kevin, I just reread your bio, your Hall of Fame bio. I'm not sure who wrote it, but that game you're talking about, the Phoenix game, the comeback, is in there. And um, I remember it. I, I totally remember that. Uh, but something else uh, struck me. Um, you're credited with – uh, bringing the 40-second shot clock into uh, into our game. And, and clearly, I mean, that really changed the whole, the whole way you approach everything. I mean, back in the day, Quadzilla won a national championship 29-28. That would never happen with, uh, you know, the advent of the 40-second clock. Anyway, can, can you talk about that? I took a lot of criticism for uh, the shot clock um, and the 12 second rule for that matter. Um, so in uh, demolition derby, uh, we were hosting, uh, we were hosting Tampa. Uh, well, we, we had Tampa and we we're playing Tampa maybe in a final or one of the games. And it's when we started getting competitive uh, with them. It was pre cliff. Um, and, we're in like a one goal game with them and uh, and they get possession to start the fourth period and they uh, they basically keep uh, play keep away for seven and a half minutes so the crowds that we would get wow. in our gym um, you know they all walked out and said this game's horrible um, so I said I'm gonna fix that next year because it's an invitational tournament I'm gonna have a 40 second we did it as a 45 second clock the first time. And then, you know, when the Demolition Derby grew, um, we'd have international teams. I'd have the tournament without sending anything out for it, usually filled by August or September the year before. Because uh, people wanted to come. Uh, it was a high-level tournament. And we had crowds. You know, it was, it, they were crowds that understood the game. So, like, when, you know, Willard Brooks makes a big block or something like that in the key, you know, the, the they're Willard, Willard, you know, the chants are going like you would in sport. Uh, so I said, we're going to introduce this 45 second clock because um, we want to make this game fan friendly. And I said that at a, a general assembly and someone said, well, what fans? And I said, that's where you guys are short sighted is you're not seeing the direction where this game could go. Um, and then I had I was criticized because, oh, you're trying to make this game like basketball. And it's like, no, I'm trying to showcase the ability of the players that we have in the game um, and really get the expectation of what they can uh, achieve. And um, so we dropped it down to 40 seconds. Um, and then people said, well, we're just going to come and key up. I said, well, I'll give you incentive uh, to, to press and um, we'll just bump three seconds off uh, over half 
uh, just to give you incentive to press. And that's where the 12 second rule came in. It wasn't a long drawn out discussion about what we're going to do. It's something, you know, people, a couple of teams said, Oh, we're just going to, we're going to key up. I'm like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to make you press. Um, and that's where those two rules, um, I never had anything to do to bring them to the international game, but we had enough international teams that were coming to the Derby that they said, all right, we're, we're going to introduce that to the, to the game of wheelchair rugby. And it was passed, I think in 2006. And I'm like, sweet. Two rules that I introduced the game are now part of the, the mainstay of the game. And, um, and, and I've, I've seen the positive effect of that in sold out stadiums. Um, several times uh, with people cheering and uh, really getting engaged in the sport. So really the vision I had with the 42nd clock, um, I've actually got to see firsthand. That's incredible. It's, it's awesome. It, it's a pivotal moment for the sport and, you know, it has changed the way we've, we played it. And like you said, it, it engages the fans. It, it gives a sense of urgency to playing harder, playing faster. If you had to talk about a game as you eventually came into the role as as USA coach, that what would you say was that moment where you like you felt the energy that you should always feel with sport? Well, uh, the the best memory I have it's it's similar when y'all uh, interviewed Steve Curley um, was in '99. We took a development team to New Zealand. Um, for the World Wheelchair Games, and we beat New Zealand on their home court by double digits. Um, I mean, the energy that we had is we're we're in the number two team in the world. Uh, we're, we're in enemy territory with a development squad um, in their home gym in Christchurch, and we're going, we're going. They sub in their strong three five Paul Leaf, and we hammer him. He falls out. It's like this game, um, th- this is ours, man. It's just like, <laughs> uh, and just to see the energy of our whole bench, everybody in that. Uh, we had one player, Mike Wagner, was classed up from a 1 to a 1.5. So we had three 1.5. So I only had one line where I could get all the 1.5s in. So it was Eddie Alexander, Steve Curley, and Mike Wagner. So I put him in with Steve Pate. Um, I mean, <laughs> like, I mean, uh, it was a, well, I mean, looking back now, people go, yeah, that's, that's quite a squad you had, but going into that turn, like all the training that we had going in, and, um, I'm the young coach. So in 99, um, I, I was probably too young to coach the U S team for the senior national team, but to coach a development team, like I had to the whole pure motivation is none of you guys are good enough to be part of the world championship or Paralympic squads. Uh, like, so then I'd run them, I'd run them and I'd run them. Um, and then we go into to New Zealand. We, we lose to Australia. Um, and then the way that things worked out is we ended up having to play Sweden um, in the crossover and New Zealand and Australia played uh, each other in the crossover. And then uh, Australia ended up losing to New Zealand and we get to play New Zealand on their home court. And I mean, it was okay. We're going to play the number two team in the world. It's like, let's go out and get it. Um, right. And the guys were just hungry. And, and then they sub into three, five when Paul leaf comes in and we knocked him over. It's like game over. <laughs> I mean, 
it, it was just one of those kind of feelings that you go, yeah, okay, we, all the preparation we got to this point, we're, we're in control. May, may I make a guess that Steve Pate knocked him into the next county? Um, I, I think it was actually Curly that hit him. I mean, there, there's a couple, uh, like, is it, is it um, 1.5? I mean, he was a, he played an offensive chair. He, he was yeah. a beast, man. He could just hammer somebody. Um, we had a training camp uh, at San Diego. Um, it's when they had the old Continental tires, and we're playing against, <laughs> it was a line with Joe Soares, Troy McGurk, Dean McCabe, and Dan Shaw against our starting line that we were going to play um uh, against our lines that we were running for uh, the the World Wheelchair Games, and we're we're in this game and we're we're up by five or six, and Curly hits Joe um, and knocks both Continentals off of his thing, and Joe goes spinning across the it's a nice. two court gym in San Diego, um, and Joe goes spinning, and I'm like the, just our guy, it, like the cohesion that that group had was just amazing. I mean the um, I wish I would have had that with our, our world championship and Paralympic squad, but it, it was just the, the hunger to, to want to be the best. Um, and playing against, I mean, the names that I mentioned, all great players. Um, Isn't that also like 10 points? Yes, we had people? them over points. Um, yeah, it's like nine and a half or 10. And I'm sure yes, Joe was three saying, world class, Three world-class yeah. mid-high pointers. Yes, absolutely. And Joe said, well, if he's spinning me, he's spinning me. Sorry. We had fun with Joe. Uh, of uh, course. It, it was good. It was, it was good time. <laughs> nice. So we, wow. we alluded to your uh, transcendence uh, from working as Lakeshore's coach to USA. What, what happened in between there? What uh, what steps did you take along the way in order to earn that role? Well, I think it's I, I had a I had success with the club level. Um, Reggie had asked me to to be involved with the team to prepare for Sydney, um, but my younger daughter my my wife was pregnant with our younger daughter, so I told him really I could. Um, I was worried about not being able to go to the World Wheelchair Games because. Um, if my wife would have had her early, then you know, I would have just had to have Gumby take over as the coach and because I was going to be at home with my wife. Um, so for the whole Sydney thing is I couldn't commit to um, what they were doing as far as training camps and that kind of stuff because I wanted to make sure that I was home. Um, and after Sydney, I, uh, I was contacted and asked, do you want to be the head coach? So I said, sure. Um, like my only experience really was with that developmental squad. Um, I was in my still in my low thirties at the time. It's like okay, uh, you know, still trying to figure out. You know, only like nine years into knowing what wheelchair rugby is, or you know, something like that. wasn't in it long, uh, but uh, you know, then I get here, here you are in, in charge of the Ferrari. So <laughs> let's go drive it. So what were those first practices like when you were? out there with this squad, you've been given the keys to the Ferrari. You probably knew all the athletes out there. What was your mindset getting these folks ready? Well, I was trying to learn, you know, there are a lot of people that came from the uh, ball control, uh, 
style of play. And uh, I was a full tempo, hey, let's go kind of coach. So um, there were some players that that liked the style of play that I was coaching. And there's some players that didn't buy into it. I mean, because Terry Vineyard, and I'll, I'll give him credit for the ball control, you know, because it, it, historically it, it started with Terry, um, you know, then Reggie carried it over. Um, then Joe eventually had it. And then Benoit, um, I, I, you know, so there's a lot of people that have kind of carried the history of what that style of play. So it was somewhat of a, uh, and then there was a little bit of the East Coast, West Coast kind of differences of play. Um, and I was a full throttle, let's go hit them, full contact, uh, kind of smash mouth football uh, mentality of, of the game. And there's some more tactician, um, you know, tactic kind of style that, like, I, I totally understand now. Uh, at the time, I, I'm like, okay, I know my way. And I don't know this other way, so it's like I can only teach you what I know. Um, so it, it was challenging for me as a coach, to be real honest with you. So, you know, Kevin, I want to give just a little bit of credit um, as well to somebody that you probably know through basketball years. Do you remember um, Susie Grimes? Yep, absolutely. So she, um, she was a tactician, and she was my first wheelchair rugby coach. And that was our deal. We were... You know, it was all about strategy. It was chair positioning and playing solid defense. It was a very low-scoring game. And the game has evolved so much since then. And and I give your um, your squad and also Tennessee, when they started pressing full court everywhere, everybody wanted to emulate that, and the game changed. Well, I give Houston some of that, too. Uh, but ironically, the, the first time we ever played Sharp, at, at a nationals um, was when I had the Lakeshore squad and we we had Willard and Bryant. So we fell back in the key and right. the score at halftime was 12 to 12. Um, wow. And Reggie's looking at me like, who are you guys? Because we're the 12 seed, they're the one seed, and right. we're tied with them at half. Um, nice. So I could play that slow down ball control possession game just as much as anybody, but I wanted to go. I mean, I, um, so I, I – because from my basketball days, understanding that, um, I, I'm not saying that that's the wrong way to play, but whether it's uh, Susie Grimes, uh, Quadzilla style of play, um, or Tampa style of play, I mean, that's why y'all played for the championship. It was ball control. Um, yeah. You guys had, you had Brian Hansen and Steve Pate, right? And uh, right. Hilo. Well, um, we, no, they never played together. They were on Quadzilla 1 and Quadzilla 2. That was the hugest mistake we ever made. We didn't put them together. Uh, okay. So, so real quick on that, um, do you have like a favorite USA lineup or a lineup that you go, you know, those guys, oh my God, they could just bring it for four quarters and et cetera, et cetera. Well, I, I had a line that I really liked was the deuces. Um, Thank you. Because I started bringing that in. And, and again, if I would have known better, um, you know, for the Athens, for Athens, uh, we had uh, we had Norm and Scott. We had seven twos um, and three threes. Wow! Um, so, like, I had to cut Eddie Crouch. 
because um, we didn't have a line for them. Wow. Um, so deuces, like you could put them out, and it, it was like rapid pit bulls going out on the court. I mean, like turnovers and all kinds of stuff. Because, I mean, they had the speed, they had the agility, they had the yeah. know-how, they had the ball handling. Um, can you, uh, I, I wish can, I would have. Can you name all seven deuces? Uh, Brett Poppins, Sam Glor, Andy Cohn, uh, Cliff Chun, Bob Lujano, Brian Kirkland. Uh, who am I forgetting? Will Grew. <laughs> Will Grew. Thank you. Will was a two five, and that's uh, that, that's why um, it was challenging with Eddie because we go to Canada Cup that year and send him to classification. He comes from back from classification and says, "I'm a two. I'm yeah. Like, what? Because <laughs> uh, I thought it might get bumped up to a three, but it's like okay. Right. Um, it, when you hold his hand neutral, um, is where he did, like, and it's it's legit because. If you hold his hand neutral, he doesn't have the ability. His tendinesis is so strong that when he's uh, if he's out in neutral, then it appears that he has more function than he does, but he compensates so well. Uh, I, let, let me tell one other Will Grew story. Because <laughs> um, I'm an old wheelchair racer, and I use wheelchair racing technique to help with pushing. Well, he, was, he came to volunteer for the Roosevelt Challenge, um, when I had two USA teams and he came to run the penalty box, um, Ed Sir invited him out and he's like, what, what can I do to get faster? He says, I was a fitness instructor in the Navy and I want to be faster. I said, you need to work on your, your push mechanics. So I sent him an article that my track coach had done. And then the next time I saw him, he had the smoothest looking stroke that I've ever seen anybody have in a rugby chair. Um, and, I mean, he was so efficient the way that he pushed his chair. And it was from sharing a simple article with him about how to push. Um, and, and at the time, he just wasn't rugby ready yet uh, for that Athens Paralympics. But he was coming and coming in a big way that um, I just wish I had the opportunity to work with him when, when he was kind of at his peak. Because he was on the way up, but I never had the opportunity to work with him at that point. That four-deuce lineup, I, I, was it 08? That you ran the four deuces? Is that right? Oh, that was Gumby that had them. Um, I, I okay. had them in Athens. Um, Gumby right. had them. And that's when Nicky came in. Um, yes. That that four deuce lineup with Nick and Gruel, Andy Cohn, and Cliff, right? Seth McBride or Andy, yep. Or Brian, yeah. Oh, my. They were so solid. The line, it could have been, it could have been Poppin and Sammy with Andy and Brian. It could have been Cliffy and Bobby. I mean, they're... The combinations were unbelievable. As far as we could rotate six of them, uh, they they all offensively and defensively were solid. It was just um, just a great group of guys, um, great great athletes, great players. All of them um, super. Uh, I, I I wish it, uh, as a coach, uh, I wish I would have had the knowledge I had when I went to Canada or Japan that I had uh, to work with that same squad because running rotations and different things that I could have done with that line. I mean, I, I had a, um, in, in the Athens team, I could have easily gone 10 deep in every game. Um, if wow. not going all 12 deep, but for sure 10 deep. Um, I, I mean, cause 10 of those players easily could have played at any level. Um, and likely if, if I would have done it the way that I did Japan, uh, 
is if I did the rotations right, I could get all 12 players in um, and have them all be effective. And I wish I would have had that opportunity when I was coaching the U.S. squad. But unfortunately, I was still green and still learning, um, making my mistakes. And, you know, that's how you grow, too, is you got to make some mistakes. But unfortunately, I was that coach that lost the first time for the U.S., first major championship. I was the coach that lost the first major and then um, that didn't even play for a gold medal in Athens. So they said, adios. Um and onto different pastures, so which is all good. That's part of sport. Well, it, also the U.S. hasn't won a gold at a major other than one since you stopped coaching, right? 2010 was the. Oh, Gumby won the worlds in uh, in 06. Canada and Vancouver. And in right. They won 06, 08, and 10. 10. And 2010. Yeah. Okay. I'm thinking um, 2010. I think. You know, well, they won in Beijing, right? Yeah. They won, yes. yeah, Beijing, yeah. Yes. What were you saying, Cookie? I was just saying also two things. One, I think you were under a microscope because they were doing a movie at that time. And, uh, you know, I don't know how much that played into anything, but that movie came out and, you know, we lost, uh, USA lost for the first time at the Paralympics, correct? Well, it was a world championships. I mean, before the Worlds, um, it, it kind of brought the need to have a sports psychologist. Because um, yeah. before, you know, they're holding the camera up to, to players' faces saying, what's it going to feel like to play for a gold medal? And they're at, you know, this is right before we go on court. I yeah. mean, cause, um, they're, they're there in the face. And it's like, we want the exposure. And I think Murderball did some good things. Um, it was... It was good, but then, like, I talked to the producers after that, and I said, you know, we've got to – I'm either going to put a stop this or we've got to have some some ground rules. Um, and Jeff Mandel – well, Jeff and Dana Shapiro were really good as far as, okay, well, we're listening to you because uh, we want you to be as successful as you can be um, while we create this documentary. And I'm like, okay. Um, so I said, let's proceed. Uh, and, and it was it was good. I mean, murder ball was obviously really good for the sport. I mean, there's there's just, like when I go into Canada, um, I mean, there's many many players that I've heard of that hey, we would have played this game with had it not been for the documentary. So, in some cases, it's really good for the transformation of the game. At the same time, it was uh, at the time it really it exposed some of the weaknesses that we had in our system. Yes. I'm glad, I'm glad you're touching on that because I often wondered from, you know, somebody, the point of view, when you guys were in the middle of it, I, I wondered if it was hampering your ability to coach and their ability to play at the highest level. Well, there are some distractions and, and some of that is exactly. it, you but, want those distractions. Okay. But you know, we, we had to basically after that is, is have a sports psychologist involved with the team. And that was the solution that I had is let's, let's still continue to do that. Still like to do it now is if you want to do a documentary, you want to do a movie, you want to do live video, you want to do social media. Absolutely. We, we need to just be better at handling distractions and understand that now Paralympic sport is world-class elite sport where we're going to have these things. And, and murder ball really helped us um, jump to that level, I think, from a global perspective. Well, the world certainly has gotten better, right? I mean, and you 
you've certainly helped two other teams get better. So um, the, I think the the challenge is a little bit tougher now too than it might have been, just because I'm seeing we're seeing better better coaching, more athletes playing the game, which gives you a better pool, player pool to choose from. And plus we've had a lot of transition in the types of lines that you're facing. Like, uh, you know, when I look at the lines that you see with, uh, for example, Australia or GB, um, did you face those kind of lines when you were coaching USA? Did you see many high lows, effective high lows? Well, everyone was trying to get to that point, and it was really trying to identify those kind of athletes. And if you really look at the history of the U.S. teams, um, a lot of times people now, uh, you know, I've heard you guys allude to the quad amp and some of those kind of things. But if you really look back in the day, is people were taking the highest functioning players they could possibly get regardless. So in the old days, it was the incomplete SCI. So the person that had some trunk, it had so they had a stable core, um, whether it was through spasticity or whatever, is that most of the players that were on the court, 0.5s to all the way through the threes, the three fives, um, usually had some stable things, and and there were exceptions. I mean, Goldie is that pure 2.0, um, right. you know. So there, there, but I mean, he and he and Brian are kind of that. Uh, Dave Wilsey are kind of the uh, the true 2.0, um, no trunk, all heart and all, hey, let's go out and get it with what we got. And then there's other people that have uh, function and um, more than what they appear to have on court. Um, and that's the way that it's been um, historically in our game. And you, know, you can go to uh, – you know, if you look at uh, Canada with Garrett, um, well, you can look at Clayton Gehring and um, and Garrett Hickling as two examples of high pointers that had a lot of function. Um, and that that's kind of, it's still the case that you look at, if you look at GB or you look at Australia, you look at Japan, you look at anyone that's out there in the world is that you're looking at high functioning players. Um, and, and GB actually capitalized on the Paralympics in London is that, allowed them to recruit players and actually start um, a process of, hey, these are the people that would be the highest functioning uh, classification in this. Um, and I really think that that, me that method helped them win the gold medal in Tokyo because um, the people that they had, Jim Roberts, um, very high functioning 3.0. Um, yeah. Also credit to that as far as the, the way that teams recruit and go that way, but the great thing is, is if recruit a uh, high pointer, you know, low pointers are still, um, as much as people want to look at the success of the high pointers, is Australia was really at their strongest when Ryan Scott and Nas Erdem were on their team. Because right. they were great point fives that played their role. Um, when Nas was not on the court, um, it, it gave other teams a chance and not taking anything away from Chris Bond or Riley. Um, but those point fives, they did their job. They did what they're supposed to do and it made players look good. Um, but if you don't have good low pointers, um, your team's not going to be successful. And you look at uh, Paralympics in Tokyo, um, Ryan Towling, um, 
the accuracy he had on his bump passes in the semifinal game against Japan and against the U.S. in the final, I mean, 1.0 dead accurate. I mean, we uh, when Japan, we had the matchups we were looking for, and then his accuracy was just dead on. And then uh, USA, same thing in the games. Is the low pointers won the games, and everyone wants to tip the hat to the high pointers, but it's the low pointers that actually do the dirty work to allow them to look good. You know, um, this is funny. Dave and Mike and I have a thread that we text, and prior to our conversation here, we were talking about just today about, you know, high-low lineups, and Dave came in with, I think it's as much the low pointers that that make those lineups work, and, and you just validated that, and I, I think you're right. It's, you're absolutely right. As a trunkless 3-5, I totally appreciate my low pointers because I'll never be that fast guy, right? If right. I don't have good picks, if I don't have somebody who can, you know, help me around where I need to go, it's impossible. So, yeah, I, I get you. watching that game, I, I really enjoy watching the low point game. And even just watching, like, we just had the low point championship, I was watching that game and watching some of those guys on my team play different roles. I, I think that's going to really add – a new dimension to how our regular season goes. So I, I want to draw back into your journey, Kevin. Um, <clears throat> we, we left off when you were talking about transitioning out of USA and then you moved on to Canada and uh, eventually Japan. There's, um, there's kind of a well-known story about Bill Belichick and this is a, a, a small personal story um, not that personal. I just love my brownies and they, they continue to do things that are just absolutely silly sometimes. Uh, but huh. they fired Bill Belichick, one of the greatest coaches of our, our generation. Um, and I'm wondering if you had a similar moment that Bill had, he talks about this, that the best thing that ever happened to him as a coach was to lose a role. And do you think you became a better coach because of leaving USA and going to Canada and Japan? Did you become something more than what you thought you could be? Well, I was still working at Lakeshore after I was let go as the U.S. coach. So the rugby guys had come. Gumby had asked me to be his assistant coach to begin with. So I, I was originally asked and I said, at the time, you know, it's like, okay, we're, we're just – same band, different lead singer. Mm -hmm. um, so I said, let's wait till after World Championships. Um, and then after 2006, because I was picked up as a uh, wheelchair track coach. Um, so I was working with USA Wheelchair Track as well as working on Lakeshore. And, but then when the guys had come in, never asked anything wheelchair rugby. I was still coaching Lakeshore, and we were doing pretty well. We were still making the final and all that kind of stuff. So still pretty good at our uh, – still doing all right as a coach. Yeah. So I'm like, um, no one really values what I'm able to bring. Um, then I was asked out of the blue, um, Hey, would you apply to be our head coach? I'm like, my wife does not want to leave Alabama. Um, I'm like, well, you, you just need to come up for training camp. So I lived in Alabama and was coaching Canada. Um, it was actually good timing because I was able to be a dad. Um, and that was probably the bigger decision than being a coach is that I, I needed to be a dad. I mean, I had 
uh, two young kids and I was never home because I was always doing something uh, when I was here. And then coaching Canada really allowed me to do more things with my children. So I'm really thankful for the time that I had to be able to be a dad uh, more than it was to validate myself as a coach because I, I felt um, I, I felt that I was still doing a pretty good job as a coach, but it you know, it's finding the right people uh, that really wanted to be coached. And, you know, fortunately I had people that said, Hey, yeah, we want you to be our guy. And, but that, that it's always fickle. I mean, it's, you know, one day you're the hero, the next day you're the zero. And, you know, the old adage is, you know, players win games, coaches lose them. It's like, all right, um, you, you've got to know that going in as a coach. Um, and, and being, you know, when I was young, like, I mean, I was 30, 33, 34 years old when I was coaching the U S team. So it's like, you know, I had players older than me. And, um, and then when I went to Canada, I had players that are still my age. Um, you know, Dave and I, Dave Wilson and I are the same age. Um, Dave and I see the game the same though. So I never really had an issue with Dave. Some of the younger players like, Hey, you gotta have some of this work ethic. You gotta have a little uh, bit of this. And uh, he was a pleasure to work with. The, the Canadians in general were, were really good to work with. I mean, uh, I learned a lot from uh, coaching them, and and that's really the thing that fueled me more than anything is that going to a different country. What can I learn as uh, as much as what can I teach? Um, and I think I've learned as much as I taught them. Um, and, and everywhere that I go is, hey, can I learn something in the next journey? And the more that I can learn, the, you know, the better and the more well-rounded I can be. So. Um, and I always said, until I lose that, you know, I'll stop coaching. But I still feel that, you know, even in July, I was still learning as we go. But it's like, all right, some, some journeys come to an end. And it's like, um, uh, certainly, certainly it was a, a good going away for me. But at the same time, it's like, ah, oh, I still got a little bit in me. I still know a little bit about the game. <laughs> hey, Kevin, I'm curious. Did you take any um, any flack or any heat from anybody when you – started coaching Canada with the rivalry that had existed between USA and Canada since the beginning? Uh, there were a few people that, that saw it that way. And, and just given the storyline and murder ball is like, right. um, I, my answer always is, and always was, it's kind of like Terry Vineyard is, you know, we weren't out coaching different countries as a re revenge kind of thing. It's, it's bringing the, um, our professionalism as coaches um, to spread the game, to develop the game, to evolve the game, and wherever we're able to, to coach the game. So, um, you know, I respect Terry Vineyard a lot as far as uh, the work that he did internationally bringing the game. And I felt that when I went to Canada, that was really my role. It wasn't out for revenge. It wasn't about um, some, uh, some other motive. It was about being a professional coach, going somewhere and just bringing my trade uh, to another area and really uh, – I really appreciate the opportunity to be able to coach sure. um, well, as where a do professional you go? coach. I mean, right after you coach USA as a coach, there aren't that many other positions at that level available, but they're all outside of the United States. And to be offered one is, is quite an opportunity. You know, I, I, I don't know how someone can fault you for taking an opportunity like that. And, and it was, <laughs> coaching one thing as opposed to having six or seven different activities that I was coaching or running. Cause yeah. I mean, when I was at Lakeshore, even when I coached the U S team, um, I was, when I was 
coaching the U.S. team, I was still the director of uh, youth programs at Lakeshore Foundation. I was coaching junior track, adult track, um, the Lakeshore rugby team, and the U.S. rugby team. When I went to Canada, I got paid a little bit more money, and it was just one sport. One focus on what I was doing, which really made things great, because like, okay, you can focus your attention on something that, I, frankly, I had some issues when I was coaching the youth the U.S. team, even at Lakeshore. Um, uh, we're, I'm coaching the U.S. team in North American Cup, uh, 2004, and uh, two hours before gold medal match, I had a employee say, "Hey, can we talk about budgets?" Um, because the budgeting cycle happens in June. And I said, I have a gold medal game, um, two hours. They said, you're the director. You need to be, I'm like, ah, wow. wow. Um, so being able to have the opportunity where my sole purpose was, hey, you're going to coach wheelchair rugby. It's like, wow, that's, that's single-minded as far as what you need to focus your attention on um, so I could keep my mind right. And then I didn't have any uh, other conflicts uh, internally or externally, uh, directing how I was thinking. Yeah, where are your priorities? Come on, you've got <laughs> a gold medal game. Oh, it's crazy, man! No, it's... I've got another job that you've got to do. <laughs> That's different. But they were paying my salary, so it's like, uh, okay, yeah. Can I can I share a story real quick? So we were in Colombia, Bogota, and I was helping out the Colombian team. And they're they're just you know trying to trying to develop a team more than anything, and Team Canada's down there, and I was getting on a bus just trying to get back to the hotel, and you had just had a what's a good word a a difficult moment with some chair stuff going on with one of your players. Do you remember all this, Kevin? Yeah. And you got on the bus. And you were telling the story and ripping into this person and that person. And you looked at me and go, and why is Chris Cook on our bus? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, uh, oh, I remember what it was now. It was Team USA pro protested something about one of your players' chairs. I can't remember who it was. It doesn't matter. It was Mike but Box. Anyway, <laughs> who was it? It was Mike Box. Yeah. Anyway, but yes, it was. Anyway, bottom line, um, it was a, a kismet moment because I was really on your side on that. And I finally said, I'm just here helping out Columbia and trying to get a ride back to the hotel. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I did. It was interesting. And I was sitting between Garrett and somebody else. It doesn't really matter. But they both hit me and they're like, get off the damn bus. <laughs> Oh, goodness. Anyway. So as coach of Team Canada, uh, one of the bigger moments to me is that win against U.S. in London. You know, you, you took an early lead in the first quarter but by about seven, and USA chipped away and was able to tie it up but wasn't able to, to get come back and win. Right. Beat them and play for the gold medal. Can you tell us about that game, about the emotions of that game, both during and after? That was huge. It was fun to watch. I just actually just posted uh, that flagrant foul on Will Grew where he's like sideways in the air on Facebook today. Oh, the one that Aaron Phipps won him? 
Yeah, yeah. Long a little pass that went. Uh, he went in there really hard. Yep. Him, spun him. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, the, um, between you and uh, USA. If you want to go before that, because Zach Medell was not part of the the right. go-to lines or anything really going into that. He kind of had a little coming up party at Canada Cup. Mm-hmm. There was um, Mike Whitehead, four. right? It was Whitey back then? Uh, yeah, it was because uh, Zach was a, um, trying to think. He was a, still a three at that point. Uh, we, we had a couple good moments leading into uh, the London Paralympics. So uh, I'll get to your question, Dave, because sure. – um, you know, first we had Canada Cup. We played the test event where um, Zach was actually able to play against Riley. Um, and Riley thought it was cool to have another young person. Um, I'm sure. So got some support really from Riley that, hey, you got this young kid that can come out and battle and and go. And it's like, okay. it, it That really gave me some confidence as a coach is that you got a player. You know, I've, I've known Riley since he started too, so – um, it's like okay, he's given a little validation to to Zach. Nice. So um, first time I started him was against uh, Belgium, and Bob Van Acker looks up at me like you're going to start him. I'm like, yep. Um, so you know Zach kind of had his go there. You know, obviously uh, beating Belgium, and um, then it's like the big decision about who you're going to start against us in the semis. I'm like, okay, we're going to go with that. Zach and Zach and Mike played really well together. Uh, Zach just under like from the, the time that I met Zach to the time there is like just really coachable, really easy to, Hey, we're going to do this, this, and this. And I, I spoke basketball, could apply it to rugby. Mike played back, could apply it to rugby. Um, Zach spent some time with Garrett and Dave um, you know, you, a lot of different rugby minds, Ian Chan, Trevor Hurstville, I mean, Pico, guys, and I, I mean, there, there's a lot of people that really tried to help Zach. So going into this game is Zach was just, hey, I'm I'm having fun playing rugby. So send him out there and it's like, boom, turnover, boom, turnover, boom, turnover. Um, and then, oh, wow, this game's really fun. Um, it, you know, there's no, uh, there's no pressure. So you jump out like six or seven goals right at the beginning um, you know, then, then we started thinking like the U S is like, Oh, what hit us? Um, and then they started clawing back and then we start thinking game gets close. Um, we get to, uh, the end, you know, the, the, the big moment in that game. Um, and again, uh, um, the, the hero of the game, a lot of times people think the big turnover at the end, um, caused, you know, you know sub in the, the the great high-low with Garrett Hickling and Mike Whitehead. Uh, yeah. But Trevor uh, and... Uh, E-Bone was my MVP Jer- of that game. Jared Funk. Um, yeah. Jared Funk made the key play. If you go back and watch that game, he you traps the, the inbounder. Um, okay. Derek is the inbounder, and he traps Derek. So our point five stops their two on the inbound. So therefore, Chuck doesn't have the outlets to go, so it just makes it a easy pick away for G to take the ball. Um, I mean, and Garrett's just got a knack for that anyway. Um, he and Mike both. Um, so it's like when Funk's taking out uh, Derek Helton, it's like okay, 
uh, opportunity here, and then those guys know how to put a, a game away. I mean, I, I got to see it firsthand against us mm-hmm. um, in Athens and then got to use it to the advantage when I'm coaching that. So, you know, you have young Zach Medell who's able to fight and create turnovers and, and create an advantage in the beginning, and then you go to the old um, the, the old trusty uh, lines that can help put your game away. And, yeah. and then to see Garrett, you know, score with, you know, like 1.5 seconds left. Yeah. It's like just a defining, like, yes, he's in control. He knows exactly what's going on. I mean, who better to have? I mean, just an icon. But, um, but you know, time Funk was the, the hero of that game, and he's really the unsung hero of the game. And, again, low pointers make a huge yeah. um, right. advantage in the game. So real quick, I, I got the opportunity to broadcast that with NBC, and they weren't going to show they had a whole agenda ready to go. And they weren't going to show that game. But we were doing a tape delay thing a day later. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. You have got to show. I'm trying to remember. They didn't have it on their agenda to show. What was the upset in that in 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 that uh, in that tournament? There was an upset that happened. And then it led to USA and Canada playing each other. Anyway, the bottom line is. Um, we talked him into. Well, we lost Australia, late. so we, we lost Australian pool players. That's so what it was. We were, yeah, so we, we talked him into switching um, to that. I, I gave them a little bit of the background of Canada, USA. And then, of course, the big deal was, like you just said, that turnover or, you know, taking care of Derek Helton. And then ultimately, Garrett Hickling scores that winning goal. And, you know, he's like the grand poopah. He's, he's been doing it the longest, and I got an opportunity to play with him, and he's a savant, and he's such a good, good guy as well. And he and he teaches, he teaches with his actions, and he'll say things like, "Just go straight up the court. It's a simple game. Go straight up the court, and I'll follow you. Just go straight. It's okay. <laughs> it's hilarious. I see you smiling. You know about this, Kevin? Oh, geez. G is one of, uh, and you know, G is one of the smartest minds yeah. in wheelchair rugby. And uh, a lot of people just look at his physical presence and things like that. They give him the game. It's like he just knows every little detail of the game. Yes. Um, and he's a fighter. I mean, you know, I talked earlier about Cliff. Uh, Garrett Hickling is another one. Of the, I mean, all these people that I had the opportunity to coach, I mean, we're talking about um, I, I mean, it's still a young sport, but I mean, two of the great, well, I mean, I've, I've had opportunity to coach many of the greats of the game, and um, uh, Garrett, just a pleasure, like, yes. you think the guy been there, done that, fought against me, um, I, I still find it very ironic that um, I was the U.S. team coach that lost to Canada, and Canada asked me to be their coach, and then uh-huh. I was the Canadian coach that lost to Japan and then Japan asked me to be their coach and then have a player like Garrett Hickling, who's, you know, arguably one of the best players of all time. Um, and then one of the most coachable people to go up and say, you know, what can I do? Cause it kind of got him towards the twilight of his career. And unfortunately I'm the, I'm the guy that cut him from the last Paralympics that I'd take him with us to Rio. And, and he's probably a little sore about that, but I mean, what a great career the man had. And having him seal the deal for us in London 
um, I mean, just a, just an honor to be able to coach the man and just, uh, hey, I want you to do this. Or, or then he'll tell you, Cookie, just go straight up the court. I mean, <laughs> right. but he knew exactly yeah. what he wanted and uh, could make people uh, follow him as well. So. so real quick, he played in a yellow, bright yellow Kushal everyday chair when he first started playing. No wheelie bars. And this guy, he was out of his chair more than he was in it. And so... He was unstoppable. He was uh, Nils Jorgensen. I Nils was a deuce and one of the fastest guys in the history of the game as a deuce at that time. And he and I, we thought we could pick anybody. The two of us could handle anybody. And so Brian Hansen would say, "What are you doing? Why is this guy?" And he was 19 years old. I'm talking about Garrett. And he, we couldn't stop him. We could not, he would bunny hop out of everything. And Brian's going, you gotta stop this guy, he's all over me. I said, I tell you what, you give me the ball and you go stop him. <laughs> we can't do anything with that guy. He, he's unbelievable. It's fun to watch him play. Oh yeah, no, he's that, awesome. And he had he played for 30 days. years, right? Yeah. He played 25, 30 years. Yeah, he's-, he's yeah, Internationally he played that long, yep. Yeah, go ahead, Mikey. So let's talk about Japan. I mean, we've talked yeah. about USA. We've talked about Canada. What was what was the draw for you with Japan? What what pulled you in? And what was the moment that you realized that you had turned this team that had pieces into something really formidable to go up against uh, at the national international level? Well, when I when I would coach against them, I mean, they were doing just some fundamental things poorly. Um, court spacing wasn't good. Uh, key offense wasn't coordinated. Uh, they were relying more on function than they were on, uh, you know, working as a team, as a cohesive unit. So, but one, it's it's an easy. There's some easy fixes to make this team really, really good, uh, which we actually did pretty quickly because, I mean, I got with the team really late 2016, early 2017, played a couple tournaments and then went to Worlds and won. Uh, and it was it was just some simple concepts of, hey, we, we need spacing. We need, um, we, need a, we need to call a play in the key. Um, and then the end of the period situations um, – have a plan as opposed to, hey, we're just going to hope for the best because they didn't really have uh, a lot of structure in that. And um, they kind of already had an idea what they wanted to do. But And then the thing I couldn't understand is uh, I've known Shin Shimakawa for forever. Um, and in the Rio cycle, they never used him. I'm like, uh, he's a great player. Uh, so that was another uh, part is, hey, let's get some – the pieces were already there with the depth. If you could have three high pointers that could play every other team in the world really only had one. Um, it's like we got three that already have big game international experience, give them concepts that they can understand, put some low pointers around them that can do their thing. Um, and this team could be a, a big winner. And that's, that's really what I did. And then it was like, okay, these guys are getting older. we got to find some young guys to, to put in their um, – to, to, to fill their shoes. 
Um, this is something that I've tried to do everywhere I've gone is you, you want players to be a legacy. I'd say the U.S. players were really uh, – Will Grew was that guy. Um, for the U.S. squad, Zach Medell was the guy for Canada. Um, Katsuya Hashimoto is the guy for Japan that are really developing um, solid players and then putting them in a position where they can really lead their teams to be successful. And I think overall um, I've done that. And it's something that I'm proud of is, you know, I've developed some players and, you know, it's not just resting on the laurels of the players that have been there, done that, but also having developed players that, um, whether they continue, you know, Brian Kirkland's one of those guys that I could say I, I started from scratch and developed. Um, you know, he's obviously done the work. Um, I was not easy on that man at all. Um, I, I was very, very hard on him. Um, he deserved you know, it. Like, <laughs> like do this. You, you can do this yourself. Um, I, I learned. Uh, he and I are close to the same age. I, I respect him a lot. I appreciate him. Uh, just allowing me to, to coach him. Um, but I think, you know, that's the same thing with whether it's the Japanese guys of, Hey, we gotta, you gotta do this. You, you can do this. Um, looking at a, a man like you can um, as talented as the man is, um, sometimes he doesn't realize how good he is. And you just got to tell the guy, Hey, you got to trust that you're pretty good. <laughs> um, in a gold medal game against Australia in, in 2018, you know, we had built a lead against Australia, which no one had done. Um, and then Australia came back, and they were actually up by a couple. And I just I looked at them um, uh, through translator, because everything that I do is you've got to believe. Uh, you've got to believe that you're good enough to win the game. Um, and ultimately came back, fought, and we were good enough to win. Um but I mean, at that level, sometimes the simplicity of, hey, you got to believe that you're good enough to, to win. Because um, at that level, everybody's pretty good. That Kevin? was a crazy game, too. Right? Lots of turnovers. Um, oh, yeah. And then yeah. in the end, no one had timeouts left. So, hey, yeah. all right, we're going to play rugby. Hey, Kevin, you know, at every, every country and with, you know, your squads at Lakeshore, you said this early on, it's your mantra and, um, you guys, you fight and, and yeah, I mean, that's awesome. Um, quick question. You said you had a translator. Do you speak Japanese or how, how did that work there? I, I would, I would coach practice like I would coach a game. So things that I would say in a game, I would say in practice, it could be translated I, but also trying to keep things simple. So, I, you know, the players started learning English. I can I can speak a little bit of Japanese. They can understand English. But really, you know, when I'd yell something, I'd explain why I'm yelling something. Translator would translate it. And, I mean, especially this time after six years and hearing the same thing, is try not to stray off course. I mean, the, the idea is that you have concepts of what you want to do. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer in fundamentals. You know, if you can execute fundamentals pretty well, you're going to, you're going to be successful. So it's really having some fundamental concepts of what we're trying to accomplish. When we get in a game situation, I could yell. They knew exactly what I was talking about. If we dealt with any adversity, um, that was the last thing in this last deal that I could just yell across the court and almost get an instantaneous response uh, when we're playing Australian zone championships. I mean, it's like, we got pretty dialed in with what we're doing. It's like you see something and you're playing against 
some great players. And when you can make an instantaneous change and help as a coach, it's like I see something, um, I can say something, and they can respond right away and then has a positive result. Actually very good. But are you yelling in English? Yeah. But okay. I yell in practice. And I, there, there's a lot of Japanese words that are actually English, like pressure in Japanese is pressure. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I mean, if I yell fight – or if I start yelling, um, they, they kind of understand that, okay, we got to, hey, let's work. Uh, you know, because fight and work are two things I might be yelling, <laughs> um, as Dave mentioned, would say on the uh, broadcast. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's, uh, it, hey, it, sometimes what I'm seeing is if, if their body language is like, uh-oh, um, then I'm yelling fight or work because I don't want them thinking about the play is that responding is better than, uh Oh, what's going to happen to me um, in this situation. So language didn't matter. And it actually probably worked better with, uh, with coaching Japan than it did the other countries because they left their ego at the door. Um, and it, I was able to coach without any hesitation or any second guessing or anything like that. I mean, Japan was really a privilege to coach because um, as a coach, you know, you didn't have a lot of wham, 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 like the North American teams uh, huh? sometimes would have. Uh, what are you trying to say? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone has an opinion. My Mine sometimes didn't matter and as a coach. It's like, okay, all right, have a good time. So uh, quick question. Yeah. How is the food in Japan? Japanese food is awesome. And, you know, know, people think it's just sushi or whatever. It's like, man, there's so much Japanese food that people don't yeah. even know. And, and, and thing with, there's not a lot of spice, uh, but you're going to get, you're going to get smell. You're going to get nuances in flavor. It's going to be texture. It's, it's a lot of the, it's a lot of subtleties that, that are really in Japanese food that you're getting. And most of it's really healthy to eat too. So, I mean, it's win, win, win. Um, when it comes to the cuisine, I mean, it's, it's one of those things I think I'll miss is the, the different foods that you have in Japan, but, um, it's, um, it's pretty good. You, you had me at hello. I love Japanese food here and I love all the nuances, but I would really like to go to Japan and eat. Doing a food tour. I go to Kyoto. Um, my wife and I went to Kyoto, and we did. We actually took the cooking class and uh, learned a little bit of nice. nuances there. It's, so I don't have to go there. I can come to your house and eat. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't hear an Takoyaki. Yep. You, you, you can probably. Oh, no, you're living in Vegas now. You. Uh, I was gonna say you could probably get some good Japanese food in, in the Bay yeah. Area, but now Absolutely. that you're in Vegas, you know what? Um, they, they, they've got everything here. I've, I've been here five weeks now. And everybody's taking me to dinner at different places. Oh my, I'm I'm gaining weight. No, it's been great. Look look for look for Japanese ramen and, and send me a picture when you uh, when you go. Okay, right on. Because there's on. there's some good ramen shops now in the U.S. Uh, there's a couple in Birmingham, so I'd assume there's some in any of yours here. It's uh, likely in other localities. Right on. I was well, going to ask what what. What kind of a change is it coming back to Birmingham? You've gone yeah, no full doubt. circle here. Um, full circle. We're, we're back to Lakeshore. We're back to Birmingham, Alabama. 
We're, uh, I'm hoping fishing more frequently. Uh, what's, what's good in the world now, now that you're, you know, kind of settled down, you're not traveling thousands of miles every few weeks. Uh, what's life for you like now? I'm a lot busier now. Um, <laughs> uh, less time for fishing. Um, but the, uh, you know, I never left Birmingham. I've, I've stayed in Birmingham, but, you know, instead of, you know, sitting at my house and watching video and um, doing that kind of stuff, actually working as the director of recreation athletics at Lakeshore and managing staff, you know, doing a wide range of rec and athletic programs. So the fall things are in full swing now. It's really just trying to coach really the next generation. I mean, I've had great opportunities to coach um like I did recreation, I did youth programs when I was at Lakeshore the first time. Um, and it's really trying to um, keep standards of of what good programs can and should be um, is really what I hope to do for Lakeshore Foundation is, is if anyone aspires to be that next level world-class coach, I have that opportunity. If they want to be the next world-class recreation professional, I think I've done that as well as that can actually bring that leadership to hopefully have the next generation or generations to come um, to, to continue what what we all want to see. I mean, it's um, you know, I've, I've had an opportunity to do it in uh, in wheelchair rugby. I've had an opportunity to do it in wheelchair track. I mean, I've I've coached um, I've coached Paralympians in both sports from the ground up, um, and I really want to pass that on to the next people so that those things aren't lost. Um, you know, cause I think we, we need to have, uh, it's like you guys have in the podcast that sharing your knowledge and stuff like that through, um, through this means, um, cause if we don't share the legacy of what we know to people, um, then they're really not going to know how to, you know, your first question to me was how did you start the Lakeshore program? You know, people don't know how to start programs. They don't know how to build programs. They don't know how to develop people. They don't, you know, it's, um, like a lot of things I'm seeing in the the game now is let's go find the high pointer that plays for France and bring him in here to our team in Las Vegas or Chicago or, or Michigan or wherever, instead of, Hey, let's develop the guys that are here. Um, and it, the example that I had here is the only time I brought in an international high pointer was brought Dan Buckingham. It was after I was done coaching the U S team. And I had a young player named Joel Wilmoth, and I had never coached a high pointer before. I had all these – well, Wayne Romero was already a decent high pointer, but I never developed um, a high pointer. So Joel Wilmoth was kind of in the, the ranks. Uh, so I brought um, I brought in uh, Dan Buckingham, and he helped mentor um, Joel. I mean, our Lakeshore team helped mentor him too, but I learned a lot from Dan, and hopefully we've shared some information that helped him, but, um, you know, it was, was always a player when he played Joel. I mean, he, Joel worked with, yeah, Joel a lot of beast. Promise. he was yeah. amazing. What happened to him? He, he didn't last long. Well, he, um, it's one of those difficult things in the U S is that, you know, we don't have the, uh, we don't have the budgets like, uh, you know, any kind of supplement for athletes. So he had to go to work when he graduated from high school and, had to start a job. So, um, he started working then got married and had a kid. Um, so that kind of got him out of the game and, 
and he gained a bunch of weight when he went to work. So he wanted to make a comeback um, into rugby, but I, I, I think it was challenging. I mean, I, I can understand that is when you gain a lot of weight, it's really challenging in our situations to, to drop it. Yes, it is. <laughs> I, I met Joel about, well, I was helping out with the, uh, the force developmental team, the AAA USA team. And um, I met him down in at Lakeshore and Gumby was there and he introduced me to him. And he's a, he's a big man. And uh, we chatted for a bit, super nice guy, but he was already kind of on the way out. And um, I don't know. I just, I see that and I go, God, you know, USA could have used a guy like that to, to stick around. Well, I, <laughs> he had one, of the, one of the complications thing, too, right? But when I'm mean, coached against, um, when I was coaching Canada, one of the first times, well, the first time we played against Lakeshore, we played against uh, basically the same squad I was coaching. And uh, the only thing that had changed was me as the coach for the different sides. And uh, they got beat pretty bad um, for, <laughs> by Lakeshore standards. And I, like he wasn't there long after. And I, I hope I didn't break that as far as their – their willingness to want to keep fighting. You know what I mean? It's, um, Oh, so we have you to blame. <laughs> there, there were people, there were a lot of fingers pointing at me. They're like, I you know, coaching them, blah, blah, blah. blah. Yeah, I mean, it was, there, there was a period of time that there were players here that wouldn't talk to me. And, and that hurt because, uh, players that I started, uh, crazy. Well, if you ever do do a coaching clinic, I'll be the first person to sign up. Cause I would love to, uh, I, I don't ever see myself, you know, international coach, but it would be really nice to, to bring that to my team and other teams, you know, like as, as older players, Chris and I, we spend a lot of time mentoring younger players on any team, right? You know, when I'm out there playing against guys, even at the D three and D four level now, um, I'm always talking to the young guy. Well, by creating D three, we've created D four, right? You have playoffs for one, two, and three. Doesn't that make everyone else D four? I don't know. Well, hey, um, I'm going to toot my own horn just if I can, because, you know, I'm the person that helped develop that whole idea behind that uh, D2 theory is that uh, we did the best of the rest. So it was a 12-team nationals, and then because Lakeshore was on the way up, um, is didn't want our season to end in March. So it's like uh, we called it the best of the rest. So any of the teams that finished third or fourth at the sectionals – or was it fourth and fifth? I, I guess fourth and fifth at the sectionals. Top three yeah. went to the um, to nationals. So it was the fourth and fifth place teams mm-hmm. um, in the section. They were the first ones invited to the best of the rest. And we got um, Northridge, which they came and showed us how to play rugby. We had Connecticut. We had Minnesota. We had New Orleans. We had Atlanta. Uh, we had the University of Illinois. I mean, it, it was a lot of good mid-range and that was kind of the beginning of what is now d2 or d3 and the best of the rest and um really i helped it's kept a lot of people around the game um yeah. and then well, you know I'm, shortly I'm, thereafter I'm, we had division one division two um I'm, and I'm just getting people to play i mean the fact that you guys are dave the fact that you're still playing <laughs> i mean that, that's a credit to that d2 system because sure. it's important important for quads to be active for life. I mean, the, the idea of playing a game 
Um, I, I know there's been some controversy around the older players playing in the league, but the idea as a quad, you know, when they, they used to think that you shouldn't be pushing up and down the court, the fact that you're playing and you're maintaining your health and you're, you're being a healthy adult and, and doing things, um, your, your life expectancy as a person with a, a, a higher level injury than some um, gives you more potential to be a, a healthier human being for a longer period of time. And sure. I think that's the thing that I credit for our sport is that, hey, we want to we, we want to encourage healthy, active lifestyles um, for the duration of your life. Um, see, Rod Pitts in Canada um, continuing to play, and he's one of the older players in Canada that continues to play. For BC, it's just encouraging to see people just continue um, whatever level that you want to play at. I think that is the most perfect spot to end right there. You've been absolutely incredible, absolutely fantastic. We've covered so much on the spectrum from um, the foundations of the sport to where it is now. And you've been along on that journey through rugby for a very long time. And You've transformed lives. Um, your life has transformed, and I think we're all better because of what you've done. And you, yeah, you obviously deserve very, that very induction into the Hall of Fame, um, which um, should not surprise absolutely anyone who knows you uh, or knows anything about your story. So uh, we'll wrap things up. But thank you so much for coming on the show and, thank you, Kevin. and talking with very, us. Very, very good. Yeah, thank thanks. You. Thanks for your contribution to Thank you, guys. We all love it's it. great to be uh, back. Yeah. Yeah. God. And thanks for joining us.